welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Mike Schreiner, who you may know as Guelph's member of provincial parliament and the leader of the Green Party of Ontario. When the Ontario legislature resumed this week for the first time, Schreiner wasn't sitting alone as the only Green member. Now there are two. The fact that Ashlyn Clancy went handily in Kitchener Center might be a sign that people are interested in listening to green ideas, and the legislature will get a chance to show that they're listening next week with a private member's bill called the Homes You Can Afford in Communities You Love Act. That's Shriner's bill. And it's his answer to the housing crisis in a time we seem desperately short of answers. Will Shriner's bill get a proper hearing? And can opposition bills get a fair hearing in this era of hyper-partisanship? These two questions, and more, are the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. For the last couple of months, you may have seen Shriner on the news or flashing past your social media feed saying, legalize it. It's not what you think, though. The it that Shriner wants to legalize are certain types of housing. The Homes You Can Afford in Communities You Love Act changes planning rules province-wide to allow for fourplexes and four-story apartments in neighborhoods as of right, and to allow for mid-rise buildings ranging from 6 to 11 stories on transit corridors and main streets. The bill would also let these changes stand by not allowing them to be taken to the Ontario Land Tribunal for review, a process that can delay projects for years in some cases. In other words, it would be a game changer. Now, presently, some of this work is being done on the local level, Guelph included. Our staff uh, in the planning department at 1 Carton Street are developing new bylaws that will make four units as of right on all properties, which would put Guelph in the same class as over a dozen other communities in Ontario. You'll hear from Schreiner this week that while these are positive developments, so to speak, it's hard to make permanent planning changes one municipality at a time, especially when they can be appealed to the OLT, like the Downtown Parking Master Plan or the Comprehensive Zoning Bylaw is being appealed to the OLT right now, in Guelph's case. So doesn't it make sense to change it province-wide all at the same time? Well, Schreiner is banking on the idea that it does, which is why he spent most of his January going from one place to another in Ontario to try and sell the bill in advance of its second reading next week and the follow-on debate. So this week, he is going to try and sell it to you on this very podcast. And that's why Shriner's here on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast to talk in depth about the homes you can afford in Communities You Love Act and why you and all the MPPs in Queen's Park should support it. We will talk about Shriner's thoughts on how the housing crisis got this bad, the elevator pitch for the bill, and why he thinks it's a good compromise to create density while maintaining neighborhood character. We will also talk about municipal politics with planning, how the bill tries to prevent nimbyism, and which profession might play the most impactful role in raising the bill's profile. And finally, we will discuss sharing the pain, the other factors in housing like labor and the economy, and Schreiner's expectations for next week's debate. So I caught up with Mike Schreiner last week via Zoom. Okay, Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Adam, it's always a pleasure to join you. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I want to get into this, first of all. I mean, we, we're going to talk about the legislation, but I want to even go back kind of a little further than that because, you know, uh, housing crises, crises don't just happen. Um, so I'm wondering if we could start sort of with your understanding, you know, with how did we get here, I guess, is the question. Like, how did things get so bad that there's a housing crisis, affordability crisis, we're in this crunch, and despite the fact that everybody's talking about it, we're, we're still kind of stuck on, on answers. How did we get here? Yeah, well, so we've had a long history. And I'll tell you, in the 2018 provincial election, which was the first time I was elected, I ran on the housing crisis, addressing the housing crisis. And shortly after being elected, uh, we put together a housing affordability plan that some have called a masterclass plan and delivering the solutions uh, Ontario needs. So I've been working hard on this issue for a long time now, but the crisis predates, you know, me being elected. 
And, and it, I think it really starts in 1995, and that's when the Harris government just canceled all the affordable housing programs in Ontario. And that was in response to the federal government, the Chrétien government, doing the same thing in, in 1993 or so. And so as a result, since 1995, um, only 7% of Ontario's deeply affordable housing stock has been built. So 93% of the deeply affordable homes in our province were built before 1995. So this is a crisis that's been getting worse and worse each and every year over the last 30 years. And then the on top of that, the additional challenge we've faced really over the last, let's say, decade is that population growth has exceeded um, housing starts. And so our population has been growing faster uh, than the number of homes we're building. And so, you know, you can bound that over a number of years and now you have a supply crisis. So we have a crisis in failing to build like government supported nonprofit co-op social uh, and permanent supportive housing compounded by the fact that you know, we just haven't been building enough homes to keep up with population growth, which is creating a supply crisis. And then you add a third element to it, which is, you know, what some people might call the commodification of housing or the financialization of housing. Mm -hmm. So you're having, you know, an increasing number of investment vehicles that are buying up homes. Uh, so, you know, real estate investment uh, trust, for example, is one example of that. You have the disruption from things like uh, short-term rentals, like Airbnb, uh, things like that. You have then, uh, you know, a rapidly increasing um, uh, housing market in terms of prices, attracting more and more investors, and in some cases, investors investing in in housing and not even living in those homes or even renting them out. They just set vacant while the price of the house goes up, and then the people realize the capital gains on it. So, you know, those. All of those elements have led us to this point where, you know, we're in a crisis that is really negatively affecting people's quality of life, especially for those who are unhoused and sleeping rough in our community. But, you know, also for young people still living in their parents' basements, wondering if they'll ever be able to afford to own a home or even be able to rent a home. So it goes across to seniors who are wanting to downsize. Uh, but they can't afford to leave their big single family home because there's nothing affordable for them to move into that would be smaller. So you're seeing a crisis across the entire housing continuum and across all uh, demographics of our society. You know, hearing you explain that, um, it, it just, you know, it, it sticks out to my mind. This is not, uh, I, I think there's a lot of, been a lot of talk about immigration as sort of like the cause of this. And that's, that's not the cause. It's it's one of the causes, but you can't pull out one cause. You can't pull out uh, real estate investment because, I mean, that was part of the market for years and years. You buy your starter home, it accrues a little bit in value, and then you can move up to the next one. Um, but then it, it's also a both, I hate to phrase it as a both sides thing, but it's also like we can't get people moving up, but we also can't get people moving down as well. It's 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 a static kind of crisis where it, it all feels kind of immobile. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that's compounded it is, at least in Ontario context, is, you know, the Ford government's been in power for six years now. And instead of actually focusing in on homes that people, building homes people can afford in the communities they know and love, they've been so focused on uh, opening the Greenbelt for development, mm. you know, enforcing expensive sprawl onto municipalities and paving over farmland, just so a handful of wealthy, well-connected Ford insiders can cash in billions of dollars at our expense. And so little wonder we, you know, in Ontario, we're not even coming close to solving this crisis. And so we really need a government that's going to focus on all aspects of the continuum of housing and coming up with solutions that work for all demographics. And, you know, one of the ones for me that seems to be low-hanging fruit, and I know we're hopefully going to get into a conversation about buying bill to legalize housing, but if you look in the older neighborhoods of Guelph, mm. so you go to the ward or the neighborhoods in and around, um, you know, the, the downtown core, and you see um, apartment buildings, single-family homes, you know, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, you see all kinds of housing types. And we used to build neighborhoods where it was legal to build 
like mixed use housing where we had lots of options for people. So, you know, you might buy that starter home and then move, you know, four blocks down, right. down the neighborhood to that larger home as your family grew. And then, you know, your, your um, grandparents, you know, are retirement age, you know, their, their kids are having kids and they could downsize to an apartment that was in the neighborhood. And so people could actually go through all these stages of life um, within the neighborhood they know and love close to their family. And that's become increasingly difficult now that we've made a lot of different types of building options illegal. And I think mm -hmm. that's not only made the housing uh, affordability crisis worse, it's made the lonely, we now have a loneliness crisis that we're talking about in mm -hmm. the Western world. And it's also just meant that our, our neighborhoods and our communities just are not as vibrant and livable as they used to be. And so when you talk about it, like the crisis being a bit stagnant, I think some of that is the fact that, you know, we've we've made it illegal um, or made it very difficult to build the kinds of mixed types of housing choices and options that people need in the various stages of their lives. I do want to get to your bill, um, but but I want to take a short pit stop and in, 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 I guess sort of what's been conventional thinking about development in the last several decades, which is that, you know, you as a young person, you you leave home, you go to university or college, you move into the dorm, you do that for a couple of years, you move into your apartment, you graduate, you get a job, find a partner, uh, build your equity, move from your one bedroom apartment to a two bedroom apartment or move to your first starter home. And then you have a family build up and then, you know, retire, sell, move on with your retirement living, whatever that looks like. And the development of the time sort of moved with that. It's sort of people sort of moved out and up and bigger. That's where the development and we we call that sprawl now. I guess how much of getting to what you're talking about, which is like creating a world where there are all types of different housing contained in the same neighborhood is as much about sort of us um, in the general public sort of unlearning that model of 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 housing through sprawl that has has gotten us here yeah well i would say that uh one that continuum of you know living in residence getting your first apartment maybe getting a slightly bigger apartment buying your first home having a few kids and getting a bit bigger of a home and then you know retiring and downsizing if we could do that in a way where you could actually stay in the same neighborhood if we actually went back to, let's say, a pre-1950s way of our our communities being developed, where they were developed with lots of different housing types and options. You know, one of the things I say to people, you know, right here in Guelph, I, I live on Arthur Street, and you go a couple blocks up the hill onto Queen Street, and you have like a, I think, I don't know, like, I think four buildings with eight or nine units in each one. So, you know, like, working class apartments literally next door to the most expensive mansion owned by the wealthiest person in Guelph. Mm -hmm. Like we used to build neighborhoods like this in on Guelph and in Canada and Ontario and we don't anymore. And our failure to do that has cost us big time. So one sprawl development is completely financially unsustainable. Right. Like there's been, you know, numerous studies that have shown this, but I point to the uh, Prosperity Institute report that shows that it costs 2.5 times more money mm. for a municipality to service sprawl than it does to actually build homes that people can afford in the communities they know and love. Um, and it makes sense, like more roads you have to build, more power lines, more sewer lines, more water lines. Uh, more more like library systems and police systems and fire departments are spread out over more space instead of all of that being utilized more efficiently and more cost effectively. I think we've also paid for it in just the quality of our lives of like, mm -hmm. you know, one having to drive everywhere and having to drive long distances and car ownership, especially if you have to own multiple vehicles is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Um, if you can't afford a car, don't want to own a car, 
like transit in these kinds of communities usually is unreliable and not very good. Right. And, you know, so then this lower cost option, at least have a, a tram line from the ward to downtown, you could take <laughs> the trade in Guelph, you know, like it's like, you know, it's hard to conceive of transit that good in, yeah. in today's city. And, and so, and part of that's just the cost of sprawl. Um, small businesses don't thrive as well anymore because mm. small businesses and local businesses that contribute so much to our economy, like they thrive in neighborhoods and communities that are more walkable, that are more, that you're, you're more likely to cycle or more transit friendly. Uh, and so I think there's been significant economic costs uh, to our local economies, to our small businesses as well. So we've paid a huge cost uh, financially, health-wise, quality of life, uh, affordability-wise uh, in terms of building out onto sprawl. And then now that we're facing you know, the increasing severity and frequency of climate-fueled extreme weather events, that type of development is a direct threat to our lives, livelihood, and property. Um, and, you know, the more we pave over farmland and wetlands and forests and green space, you know, the higher the cost, uh, to, you know, climate fueled extreme weather events are going to be. I mean, the financial accountability officer is saying that just public infrastructure alone, uh, you're looking at an additional $4.2 billion every year in cost. Insurance Bureau of Canada has shown that over the last couple of years now, insurable damages have been over $3.1 billion each year. And they estimate that uninsurable losses are three times that. So like $10 right. million a year. So when you layer the climate crisis on top of this, the costs are even escalating even more. All right. Well, let's get into the bill then. Uh, I'm going to ask you, and I'm sure you're well-practiced after the, the, the little tour you did uh, to provide an elevator pitch um, to just to start with. Homes you can afford in the communities you love act. Go. <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about legalizing fourplexes and four-story buildings within existing neighborhoods as of right. Every community in Ontario within built, the existing built environment and legalizing six to 11-story buildings along major transit and transportation corridors. This is how we can quickly increase housing supply in homes that are more affordable for people and can help reduce these huge property tax increases we're facing because right. these homes are going to be built where we already have the infrastructure in place. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like we're having to spend huge amounts of money, uh, you know, servicing new, new infrastructure costs. I had, since I introduced the bill, I had a company come to me that just specializes in uh, multiplexes mm -hmm. and they partner actually with a builder here in Guelph. So there's a nice mm -hmm. Guelph connection as well. Yeah. So they have data that shows that if only 18% of existing single family homes in Southern Ontario became a triplex, so not even a fourplex, a triplex, mm -hmm. that would be 2 million new homes in Ontario. Our goal is to build 1.5 million homes. So we could we could more than achieve that goal with no additional land by just taking 18%, so not even a huge percentage of single family homes and turning them into a multiplex. Now I I will be the first to tell you that that many homes are not going to become multiplexes. <laughs> I'll be the first to tell you that there are going to be people who want to live in, you know, um 6 to 11 story apartment or condominiums. That they don't want to, even with a multiplex, you still have a yard and things that some people just don't want to deal with, right? Right, so right, So right. not everyone's going to want to live that way, but just like, just imagine that if only 18% of single family homes become a multiplex, we'd solve the housing supply crisis in a way that would be so much more affordable than the sprawl agenda that Doug Ford is trying to impose on communities, which really is primarily designed to enable land speculators to cash in billions at our expense. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you're building uh, three units in the same space that would take up one. And totally. Or four yeah. units. Or yeah, four exactly. Units, yeah. Yeah. And if you think along, you know, better utilizing our major transportation and transit corridors, you know, that's where we should be building six right. to 11 story buildings. And so one of the things that my bill does is it gets us past this false choice between tall and sprawl. 
It shows how we can address the housing crisis through gentle density and missing middle housing and do it in a way that's more affordable for people, builders, and for municipalities. So we all save money in the process. And, um, you know, one one company that uh, specializes in mid-rise developments told me that for them, when they apply for a project, they start a project, it oftentimes takes eight to 10 years from like the time they say, hey, we want to do this project to actually starting to build the project. Mm -hmm. So by legalizing it, by making those buildings as of right, it cuts that time in half. Mm -hmm. So four to five years. That saves them a significant amount of money, which they can then pass on uh, to the renters or the if it's condos, the people buying condos. Um, it means we're going to build supply faster. Like, I mean, anybody who, you know, w walks around Guelph knows we need to build supply faster yeah. and, and more affordably. And so, you know, I'm not going to say my bill is, is the only solution to the housing crisis, right. but in that sweet spot on the market side of things, my bill basically proposes the two most important recommendations that came out of the government's own housing affordability task force, which was to end exclusionary zoning for right. fourplexes, four-story buildings as a right, six to 11-story buildings along major transit and transportation corridors. And Adam, when the bill comes up for debate on February 28th, I'm hoping it's going to pass because every party in the legislature, every party in the legislature has said, we want to get rid of exclusionary zoning. Right. Here is a concrete way that we can get rid of um, exclusionary zoning and start building, you know, communities, homes that people can afford in the communities they love. We're going to get to politics in a minute. Uh, but at first though, I want to just um, address uh, right now in Guelph, I think the, the comprehensive zoning bylaw amendment that was passed last year allows three units as of right. Um, our city staff right now are working on policy that will allow four units as of right. right. Guelph was a little bit ahead of the curve on this or a little bit ahead of you on this, but I'm curious from, from the research you've done and your interactions with other municipalities, what is kind of the holdup? Like if, if this is truly like to end exclusionary zoning is a thing that all politicians, no matter their color are talking about, what is, I guess, keeping that from being achieved on a local level? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say I'm really proud of Guelph. Guelph and Kitchener were, uh, the first two uh, communities to allow fourplexes, and by the way, Guelph and Kitchener are both represented by green MPPs, <laughs> so that might tell you something. But I will say that I was out advocating uh, for fourplexes even before Guelph implemented uh, their their new bylaw. Um, but that being said, like I'm really proud of the leadership Guelph has provided. It's my understanding now there's about 15 communities across Ontario now that have um, uh, implemented such bylaw changes. Um, and I think some of that's being driven by the federal government and tying housing accelerating or funding to bylaws that allow fourplexes. I think we can go further by allowing fourplexes and four stories in existing neighborhoods. And there's a lot of examples of that in Guelph. If you look at the video on my social media feed, uh, that was shot here in Guelph of examples mm. of that, uh, mm -hmm. in, either the ward or, you know, in and around the downtown core. Um, and, and so, you know, what's the opposition to it? Well, the opposition to it is, you know, some people have said, well, this is a direct attack on single family neighborhoods mm -hmm. uh, and we don't want that. Um, I don't see it that way at all. It's not requiring anyone. It's not saying every single family home has to become a multiplex. It's saying, Hey, we're going to legalize it. We're going to allow it. We're going to make it easy for you to do it. And if you choose to do that, you know, you don't have to go through, you know, all this red tape and in some cases still get denied. So I think, right. I think, you know, I think, you know, local pushback from, from, you know, from folks who say, Hey, I don't want my neighborhood to change is probably the biggest impediment to moving forward with this. And some politicians are going to respond to that pressure and say no to housing. I want to say yes to housing, like, because we're right. in a housing crisis. You know, it pains me to see neighbors uh, sleeping in tents in my community. It pains me to know how many young people um, 
are saying like, I can't afford rent, let alone even imagine owning a home, you yeah. know, and I, I want to fix, I want to fix those problems. And I want to do it in a way that makes our communities climate ready. Mm-hmm. I do want to attack that sort of perception versus reality thing, because I think, you know, and I've sat in enough planning meetings to see, you know, no matter what the neighborhood is, nobody wants their neighborhood to change. Yeah. And the arguments are largely the same. And I think that our there are politicians in so much as like, you're, I think you're correct in saying there are politicians who feel the pressure on the neighborhood to not change. I think there are also politicians who are like, oh, this again, NIMBY, you know, too much traffic, not enough parking. I hear the same arguments again and again and again. I'm cur- What I guess what I'm, I'm trying to get at is how do we get people to sort of see the opportunities? Because you're saying in, in this bill, like, I want to al- make it legal to have six to 11 stories along major transit corridors. And there's somebody who's down on like, I don't know imperial somewhere who thinks oh my god mike schreiner wants an 11 story building next next door to me (laughs) yeah okay so a couple things so one is is you know i think you have to listen to people who disagree with you Mm -hmm. and you have to have conversations that are build mutual trust let me give you an example um the watershed uh co-housing project that uh, David McCauley uh, put forward, um, you know, right off of um, of Woolwich, yeah. just on the like north side of downtown. Yeah. So there was significant neighborhood opposition when that was first proposed. Mm-hmm. And matter of fact, some of the neighbors even took the project to the uh, Ontario Land Tribunal to mm-hmm. try to stop it. And you know, um, luckily, you know the the project went forward. It's now been built. And there's eight homes there. Mm-hmm. And now, according to David, uh, even many of the neighbors who opposed it are asking, oh, how can I move in? <laughs> like, this is great. Like, wow. Like, as a matter of fact, a couple of the units um, are, they um, retirees have moved in mm. who had a large single family home on the street or just around the corner, wanted to downsize. There was no place to downsize in the neighborhood. They didn't want to leave right. the neighborhood. They love living on the edge of downtown Guelph. Sure. I, I live on the edge of downtown <laughs> Guelph. I love living on the edge of downtown Guelph. I get it. So now they were able to downsize into this co-housing project, opening up a ho- their home to be sold to a family who needed some more space because they have kids. Sure. So to me, that's just such a perfect example of um, the fear of the change understandably Mm -hmm. led to opposition right but once you know the community enough people came together including myself and some city councilors i think the mayor was in support our mp was in support and you know eventually it got built and now that people have seen it they're like oh i want to live here Mm -hmm. so it's i think it's having building um community support through a collaborative process can get you to yes I'll give you another example here in Guelph. Mm-hmm. You know, we have three permanent supportive housing projects that have been built in Guelph. Well, the third one's almost finished. Almost, yeah. Uh, so on you know, the Sheldale Crescent, the one on the Stepping Stone up on Woolwich, and the Wyndham House one um, on Bellevue. There was neighborhood opposition to every single one of those projects. And again, it was like the enough of us in the community, including at all three levels of government, came together and met with the community, listened to people's concerns, tried the best we could do to accommodate those concerns, but also remain firm and steadfast that we have to build homes for our neighbors to Mm. to be able to afford to live in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, brought people along to the point where you had unanimous support for those projects on council. So I think we can get to yes. Um, I, I think we need to do it in a way that doesn't dismiss or disparage NIMBY concerns, quote NIMBY concerns. Mm. Um, But also that you have to be firm to say, we need housing for people. Like people have a human right to have a safe, affordable place to live. And we have to increase housing supply in a way that's affordable. And this sprawling onto farmland, wetlands and forests is completely financially unsustainable unsustainable environmentally, climate, et cetera. So mm. 
let's figure this out. And then the pitch I've been making to municipal politicians to support my bill is one that many of them are starting to like. <laughs> once I explain it to them is, you know, municipal local councilors are the ones who feel the most pressure from those neighbors. Right. If the province takes that out of out of out of their hands and just says, you know what, we through a democratic process in the legislature, right, all voted in support of a bill to end exclusionary zoning. That when those local councilors face the most pressure, they can always just blame the province for it if they want. Right. In some ways, it takes it takes the it takes the burden and the controversy off the neighborhood, off the local councilor, right. and puts it onto a broader public policy conversation that was held in a democratic debate in the legislature. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's why I went with four plexes and four story because that's gentle density. It right. doesn't really significantly impact the character or nature of a neighborhood. Some people have come to me and said, why aren't you advocating eight plexes? <laughs> and I'm like going, well, in some cases an eight plex makes sense, but to do eight plexes as of right across Ontario, that yeah. I would understand significant opposition to. Yeah. Four plexes, no. <laughs> eight plexes, <laughs> You know, I've got, you know, there's some places where I think they're appropriate, some places probably not. And so the bill was designed out of consultation with anti-poverty activists, housing activists, home builders, realtors, uh, planners, um, you know, the Housing Affordability Task Force, uh, uh, you know, Yes in My Backyard uh organizations like a um a, a lot of consultation went into landing on a sweet spot right that really delivered the kind of change we need but in a way that doesn't create massive disruption or even major disruption in neighborhoods just to my mind a lot of this comes down to like a communications issue like there are places in guelph where i i could you know you and i could walk down with somebody who's like dead set opposed to like quadplexes, you know, that kind of general density. And like you could point to those homes and say, is that a one house for one family or is that a fourplex? And you might be surprised by the answer. And the, yes. the, 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 the examples you talked about too, about the supportive housing projects and, and, and that, uh, that other development, those are examples of people who are against it. There was a, a concerted community effort from community leaders, political leaders to make people understand. And that's great. I think that's great. People have that kind of like interaction with their political leaders. But I mean, that's that's a lot of time to expend on one <laughs> on <It> one <laughs> development. And, and I'm wondering, like, is there a way we can like sort of, I don't like not draft people. I don't mean that. But in terms of like encourage people who like... You know, I used to be a NIMBY and I was against this project and then it was built in my neighborhood and now I'm for it. Like, is there like an, a, a way we can sort of tap like community ambassadors to say, like, it's not that bad? Yeah, you know, I think I think realtors play a really critical role in that regard. And um, it was actually nice. Um, a realtor came to my town hall here in Guelph on the Legalize It campaign and got up and asked a question and said, Mike, do you remember me from your 2018 election campaign when I walked you around <laughs> Guelph and said, there's a fourplex. We could have a fourplex there. And that was when, um, for me, the light bulb went off and mm. I really became a strong advocate for um, multiplexes, ex um, tiny homes, um, laneway housing, accessory um, housing, things like that. And it was partly just walking around neighborhoods in Guelph with a realtor who specializes in helping, you know, people under 40 be able to buy a home saying to me, like, look at how many homes we could create that in a way somewhat already exist right here in Guelph. Right. If it was just legal to do it. Right. You know? And so, um, so one is I think realtors can play a really important role because they're oftentimes the people who are, you know, closely working with folks to find a place to rent or 
find a place to buy, or on the other hand, help somebody sell a place or rent a place, whatever. So that's one. The other one for me is um, changing. So other jurisdictions have changed the consultation process, the public consultation process to actively include people who are potential neighbors for the for the uh, uh, for the neighborhood, potential residents for the neighborhood, because most consultation only consults with existing homeowners or residents of the neighborhood and people who could be residents of the neighborhood don't have a way to participate in it. So their voice right. never gets heard. And so mm. changing the consultation process in a way to facilitate all that. I'll say one of the great things about my bill is, you know what? We're just going to legalize it, Adam. <laughs> We're just going to legalize gentle density and missing middle housing. You know, there is, I think there is broad public uh, consensus that we need to legalize multiplexes and, and mid-rise development. So let's just do it. Right. And I, I did this podcast with somebody who's like an expert in the building code. And and one of the things is like, there are so few options. So at, like the building code is so prescriptive. They're either building kind of like a single detached home or a townhouse or an apartment building. And because the options are so limited, the building code stuff is so prescriptive. So, I mean, the, a lot of this ties together a lot of the issues that are facing things. I do want to address another side of the the NIMBY coin, as it were. Um, I, I guess you could sort of phrase it as spreading the pain equally because sheer coincidence, uh, plan this week at city council for uh, this development at Gordon and Lowe's and Dawn. And there were people there advocating. They weren't saying like, don't build it. They were saying like, we have like very specific concerns about flooding and about access and uh, parking. But they were also saying like our neighborhood has been through like massive, massive, massive changes. It used to be a bunch of single detached homes. And now it's a bunch of apartment buildings. Like, have we not done enough <laughs> our neighborhood? And I guess what, what that sort of made me think of is like, yeah, there are some areas of Guelph. And I'm sure this is, true of other places where there has been a lot of change there has been a lot of increased density and then there are other parts of the city that don't seem to be experiencing even a fraction of that and i guess my question there is like how do we don't want to call it pain but how do we share the pain <laughs> well i mean one of the ways you equalize it is you legalize housing you legalize multiplexes four stories as of right in all existing neighborhoods and then existing residents, builders, homeowners, like they'll be the ones to decide. Right. And it'll be spread out. And so it's not just concentrated in certain areas where maybe, you know, developers feel like they can acquire land at a lower price and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like other factors might come into play. One of the things I love about um, the whole multiplex and four-story um, uh, movement is that it actually turns the development paradigm upside down to some extent. And it starts looking at citizen as developer, homeowner mm. as developer, mm. instead of like big D developer. Big D, yeah. Most of the people who are going to do multiplexes and four stories are like an existing homeowner who will hire a builder to do a fourplex for them, you know, right. um, you know, so it's, it actually turns the citizen into a developer and, and a citizen into like creating the kinds of communities they want to live in instead of it being just big D developers, which doesn't mm. mean we're still going to need big D developers <laughs> to do, you know, the six to 11 story buildings. And, you know, we'll still, you know, there's still going to be some subdivisions built and things like yeah. that, that, but but the the, the multiplex and four story building revolution is really about changing the development paradigm. And one of the things that's exciting is is there's then creative ownership opportunities. Like I've interviewed people since I've introduced the bill. Like all these people are coming to me now, going like, "Yes, this is what we need," and then telling me the creative things they're doing. So mm. like I met one group of young people. They're doing a fourplex. And then each one of them is going to, going to own one of the homes. Okay. And so, you know, they still own their own home, 
but it's part of a fourplex now. And suddenly it's so much more affordable to own that home mm. because there are four homes on that land instead of mm. one home on that land. And so because land acquisition costs tend to be the most expensive part of building a home. So suddenly you take that cost of land and divide it among four people. And now all four of them have like a new built starter home. How many people get a new built starter home, you know? Right. In the neighborhood they, they want to live in, like, you know, in, in these case, close to where they work. Or, you know, I've talked to other people who are like, I couldn't afford a home. Just prices are ridiculous. Sure. A lot of them are facing that. We but, noticed. <laughs> but then when I realized I could do a fourplex, like I can own one of them and I can rent the other three out. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a homeowner and a landlord. Mm-hmm. But now like that home ownership works for me now. And, you know, I'm going to, in, in, in not every case, but in most cases, most, most small landlords are really good people. And especially yeah. if you're living in the same building with them, right? Yeah, they're going to want to make sure you all get along. So, you know, there's going to be like, <laughs> you know, reasonable rent, reasonable rules, et cetera, you know? And so it just starts creating like new and innovative ways of thinking, right? Just think, think of like seniors, like I've had so many seniors reaching out to me saying like, Oh, this fourplex thing. It makes so much sense. Like I can downsize out of this big house that I'm lonely in. Right. Still live in the same neighborhood that I love, but you know, have four other hopefully seniors living there. Sure. And now I'm not lonely anymore. I'm part of like this community that we've created. Um, and especially if you want to go all the way to co-housing, which you know would take it to another level and have you know shared common spaces and things like that. And and the biggest barrier that so many people talk about to me is, is just the hassle of doing it. So if we yes. just legalized it and made it easy, more people would do it. And then there's one other point I want to bring up that I've learned in this process too is, and it gets to your point about alignment. You'd mentioned a while ago how all three levels of government need to be aligned. Yeah. So one of the things I've learned is, and I've got Mike Morris, the federal green from Kitchener Center working on this, and he actually asked the housing minister this exact question yesterday or the day before at, at my I, I, my request, is CMHC only will fund finance a fiveplex or higher. Hmm. Here we have people like Mike Schreiner, the city of Guelph, even the federal housing minister saying, hey, let's legalize, you know, fourplexes or let's at the very least legalize triplexes. And CMHC won't hmm. finance triplexes or fourplexes. Now, don't you think that's something we should fix? It seems something easy to fix too. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to ask just a couple more questions before I let you go. First is creating better policy is great, but there are outside factors. There's labor, there's supply, there's, you know, interest rates, economy. I I guess, how how do we look at this from the other side? How does, is there like sort of outside factors that, that make this a bit harder to achieve? Yeah. So one of the things that is, compounding the housing crisis if we go back to the very first question you asked (laughs) in like today's economic environment is high interest rates or higher you know those of us who uh, my dad loaned me a lawnmower to start my first business (laughs) back in the 1980s at 13 percent interest and he was being nice to me at 13 percent interest i think interest was at 20 percent at that point so you know when i say high interest rates i'll put it in that context and i'll age myself for everybody here in guelph (laughs) but um but anyway that being said you know higher than what has been the you know the interest rates of the last 20 years let's say labor shortages and then i think the the shortages of supplies have kind of that's less than it it was during the pandemic and the immediate aftermath of the um, lockdowns, but that, that I think sort of sorted itself out. Those are all like valid issues and they are compounding the problem. I just didn't want to talk about that because we had this problem prior to COVID and prior to higher interest rates and prior to labor shortages, et cetera. So I'm really excited about some innovations that are happening in terms of panelized buildings, modular Mm. buildings. Um, there's a company here in Guelph that, um, is started by people coming out of the auto sector mm-hmm. and actually applying kind of um, assembly line um, 
you know, of, of automobiles to housing construction. Right. And they've now shown how you can build a house that could actually be packed in like Ikea like boxes, mm-hmm. delivered on site and put together in a few days mm-hmm. versus the months and months it oftentimes takes to build. So cutting down the building time like significantly and reducing the labor need because almost all the building is being done in in a factory and actually doing it in a way that improves health and safety, because then you can rise and lower things. So you're bending over less and there's just less wear and tear on, 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 on the people's like the construction workers' bodies. Right. Uh, So I think there's some real, and, and they can just do it so much cheaper. So there's some real innovation starting to happen that um, is, I think, going to address some of the issues around labor shortages, uh, cost to build, um, time to build, things like that, that I'm really excited about. And it's great to see companies, you know, I've toured companies here in Guelph and also in Cambridge who are doing, you know, really exciting things along those lines in in our neck of the woods. And I think it would be great if the provincial and federal governments would provide some maybe financing for these types of companies in the same way they provided support, you know, for the big EV um, auto manufacturers to help some of these companies scale. Cause right. one of the things that they, they, they're showing that they're proven the ability to do it, but they need the capital to scale it and really, right. really implement it. And then I think back to your comments earlier about the building code and some of that, there are going to have to be some, changes to the building code that's going to accommodate some of these new construction uh, innovations Um, because um, like a lot of them, um, it it sometimes can be harder to be in compliance with the existing building code, even though in some cases from a quality standpoint, from an environmental like energy efficiency standpoint, they actually exceed the building code. Mm -hmm. They're still having trouble um, get it, getting like complying with all the intricate details of the building code. And so I think, you know, there's some things like that where government policy is going to have to catch up, but I'm, I'm really excited that, um, you know, I've, I've toured factories here in Guelph. When I say factories, very small factories here in <laughs> Guelph and Cambridge, where these kinds of homes are actually being built. So it's not like some futuristic thing <laughs> happening, you know, in 10 or 15 years, it's actually happening right now. All right. Well, last but not least, the politics of this. What are you? What are you expecting to happen on Wednesday, February twenty eighth, when it's debate time? So, Adam, I have no idea at this point. <laughs> I just want to be flat out honest with you, and you know me. I'm a straight shooter, and uh, I don't know. Every party, every party in the legislature has said they want to end exclusionary zoning. The Housing Affordability Task Force, appointed by the Doug Ford government basically said the way to end exclusionary zoning is to legalize fourplexes, four stories as of right in existing neighborhoods, six to 11 stories along major transit corridors. Every party has an opportunity to actually keep their promise to voters and say yes to ending exclusionary zoning on February 28th at second reading. And if they have any detailed problems with the bill, then I would say pass it at second reading and we can fix that at committee. Mm. Um, as an example, when I was consulting on my bills originally, the city of Guelph planning department raised concerns that, oh, if you do six to 11 story buildings as of right, and we don't have enough sewer and water infrastructure in place, like, like how's yeah. the city going to deal with that? So there's a provision in the bill that says it's as of right where existing infrastructure has the capacity to handle it. So right. there can be some of those types of things um, that maybe need, you know, I've consulted a lot on this bill, but maybe there's some other issues like that, that that will come up. I've tried to incorporate all of those into the bill, but I'd say get the bill to second reading. Uh, and then the thing I would say to the government, if they don't want to give an opposition uh, member uh, a win on this, then you know what? Steal it. Just take my bill, <laughs> incorporate it into a government bill and make it law because my philosophy, and I've said this a lot over the years, you know, I, I'm going to Queens Park to get things done that improve people's lives. And the housing crisis is the number one crisis we're facing right now 
Here is one way to improve people's lives. I don't need to take credit for it, though I will guarantee if they steal my bill, I'm still going to try to take credit for it a little bit, a little bit, Adam, a little bit. But uh, I don't care. They they can they can take the idea and run with it as a government bill. I'd be totally supportive of that. And then we can't end this interview without me just restating one thing. Okay. We are not going to solve the housing affordability crisis if the Ontario government and the federal government does not get back into the business of right. building deeply affordable co-op, nonprofit, social, and permanent supportive housing. Right. Uh, I can't put forward a bill like that as a private member's bill because it's a money bill. Right. And that would require money and government investment. I'm going to keep fighting for that because everyone who lives in a in a tent or is unhoused or precariously housed in the city of Guelph and in communities across this province deserve the human right to a safe an affordable place to call home. And that will not happen without government investment. And I'm going to keep pushing for that. That will have to be a topic for the next podcast. But for now, Mike Schreiner, thank you so much for your time today. And good luck with the bill next week. Hey, hey thanks, Adam. Really appreciate it. And once again, that was Mike Schreiner. You can learn more about Bill 156, the Homes You Can Afford in Communities You Love Act at the Green Party of Ontario's website at gpo.ca slash legalize dash it. That is legalize with a Z. As you heard, Bill 156 will come up for second reading next Wednesday, February the 28th in the Ontario legislature, which returned to work yesterday for the first day of its winter sitting. Just in time for winter to be almost over, I might add. But that's it for this week's show. Editorializing aside, we hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays, both of which are back with new episodes, I might add. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then... Well, we'll see you next time.